Park. It's an 87th Precinct podcast side pod. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural stories, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. But that's not all. Ed McBain also wrote under a wide variety of other names and in many different genres. So today we'll be looking at one example of that side of his creative output. My name's Paul Abbott, and joining me today is the person who was our first ever guest on the podcast back in November 2017, discussing the Star Trek episode, Assignment Earth. This is my good pal, the illustrator, Adam Paxman. Hello. Welcome back, Adam. Welcome to the world of tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Appropriate. So what's been going on with you since November 2017? Um, it, oh, two, two years of um, baby. I have a baby now, a five-month-old baby, and that has completely changed my life. Um, he's wonderful, but even getting here across town today proved to be challenging. Well, I'm glad you made it anyway. So I could described you as an illustrator there, but you've probably not picked up a pen for five months i've not more. picked up a pen or pencil with the intention of making a mark for mm. many many moons now yeah oh well it'll, it'll come back eventually i don't know when i i can't make any promises but uh, let's get on to today's topic then it is something very specific it's not a general thing it's uh, it is a specific episode of tv it's the first ever piece of work that the author had adapted for television or wrote for television, which is what I believe it is, rather than adapted. So credited to his birth name, which was S.A. Lombino, Salvatore Albert Lombino, this is a half hour of science fiction television. It's one episode of the anthology TV series Tales of Tomorrow, and it's called Appointment on Mars. Not Apartment on Mars. No. As some people on the internets would have you believe. Well, people on the internet are very nice if... They're listening to this, and if not, they're fools. Well, can we just, before we get going, I know you've been on the show before talking about sci-fi stuff with me. That's correct. But let's establish your sci-fi credentials. Why would I want you on this show to talk about something in an anthology sci-fi series? Uh, well, I own all five seasons of the original Twilight Zone on Blu-ray. Um, I'm a huge fan of science fiction in uh, literature, uh, television and film. Bit of a film buff. And yeah, huge Star Trek fan. And obviously that's why you recruited me last time. Yeah. Big- and you like the film Forbidden Planet, which is relevant I've, to today's content. I've seen Forbidden Planet uh, a More couple than of once times. I, I <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, it, a wonderful seminal piece of um, sci-fi filmmaking influential sci-fi filmmaking Forbidden Planet, yeah. Now, I don't think this episode of Tales of Tomorrow is exactly seminal or influential, but I think it's significant in some ways. It's certainly significant for S.A. Lombino, slash Evan Hunter, slash Ed McBain. So if I just give our dear listeners a bit of a breakdown on what we're talking about, a bit of the background facts. So this half-hour episode of TV was first broadcast on the 27th of June, 1952, and the writing credit is by S.A. Lombino. It was part of the Tales of Tomorrow anthology series, directed by Don Medford, produced by Mort Abrahams, broadcast live, as the entire series was, and many TV series, on ABC. And, as I said before, it was Lombino 
slash Hunter's first TV credit ever, first ever acted version of any of his stories. It's also his only science fiction credit for TV, despite the fact that he wrote loads of sci-fi short stories. So it was broadcast on the 27th of June, 1952. He'd actually legally changed his name to Evan Hunter in May of 1952, Mm. but presumably this was made or written before then and submitted before then. We know it wasn't produced before then because it went out live. So he was already Evan Hunter by the time this this went out on on air. And I can't find anything more about it in in the various records of his career, his, his talking about it, his list of his archives and things like that there's no reference to this episode in there at all yeah just just from my very scant um uh, research uh which will pale into significance um but compared to yours paul and i realized that it would when you when you google this uh when you do a, a superficial internet search there's just a few websites and blogs discussing it generally uh, giving a bit of a, a review or a synopsis. Um, I tried to track down a screenplay, and all I found was a transcript taken from the um, the, the broadcast itself, and and with, with several um, inaudible uh, descriptors. Well, that's so just be what, before you continue. That's a good point. This is available to watch online. Okay. Lots of the tales of tomorrow were fortunately kept as telecine recordings. So, and also they're out of copyright now, so they are available on YouTube. Uh, if you want to download a better quality version, you go to archive.org. So this is a watchable episode, so we're not just talking about something in abstract here. We have seen this a few times between that, us yeah, now. That's right. I, I watched it a few weeks ago when you when you um, suggested it, and then we've watched it again today. And the the certainly the version I watched on YouTube was quite muffled and lower resolution than the one we watched today. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I would I recommend you yeah, the archive copies, definitely. Yeah, so I've, I haven't got much trivia around this relating to the author particularly, but I can put it into context. I've extracted basically the information about what he'd written by this point. So as I say, this is his first TV credit, so there's no, nothing before that. In terms of his actual his output as a writer, we've only got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven entries in, to his name at this point. We've got a short story called Reaching for the Moon, which was November 1951. A story called Fury on First in December of 51. I'm giving away all my research here. Hmm. Uh, um, there's two, basically, there's two novels. One's called The Evil Sleep, which is a Evan Hunter novel. Find the Feathered Serpent, which is his first kid's sci-fi novel. And then there's another detective story. There's two more sci-fi stories, and that's it. So he's only had seven things published and made available to the public with his name or var- variations on his name, he's, he's basically S.A. Lombino, Hunt Collins and Evan Hunter are the names he's used up to this point. No Ed McBain yet. Hmm. That doesn't come for a few years. When you mentioned uh, Find the Feathered Serpent, because I, I looked up um, some sci-fi that he'd written and there's, there's some, I suppose, what we'd call now young adult or, or yeah. kind of general audience with it, you know, children in mind as well and find the feathered serpent was there and the the name inspired me to look up whether that was connected to the uh the tv series the later tv series the feathered serpent which was mentioned uh, when we went to uh, an evening of um, about scarred for life oh yes um, uh, the book um scarred for life but i couldn't make out whether there was any i think the connection, connection is, to that. It's, is it, just the historic mytho- figure of the, the mythological the serpent. yeah the, yeah but which I think is a Aztec, Aztec yeah. Mexican thing. 
I will be doing an episode about the book Find the Feathered Serpent with my brother. He will be returning to complete the trilogy of Ed McBain's juvenile sci-fi stories very soon, I hope. But the fact that this comes out under the name S.A. Lombino is interesting. Some sources on the internet say that this is actually an adaptation of a short story or it was adapted into a short story later. And they quote that it's the story What Price Venus? which appeared in Fantastic Universe magazine in August of 1953. And in fact, there's a book called Vintage Science Fiction, which is all about stories that inspired famous film and TV episodes. And it's included in that. And that was done in the mid-90s. I think it's rubbish. I don't think this story, What Price Venus, has anything to do with this whatsoever. Mm. Because one, Venus, not Mars. Two, it was published a year later, over over a year later. broadcast, yeah. And three... I've read it, and it's got nothing to do with the story, other than it's some Earth men on another planet. Yeah, which is a fairly standard yeah. setup. And lots of his stuff is about Earth men on other planets. Yeah, it really, if you try and wrap your head around the idea that it's a variation on a theme, it's not, that story's mm. not at all. So I, I poo-poo anyone who says what price Venus is, an adaptation of Appointment on Mars, or the other way around. I did find a story that he, that was published again in late 1953, called Outside in the Sand, which at least does feature a a man from Earth going mad on Mars whilst lots of wind is blowing and howling and ends up with him... That does sound reminiscent, yeah. Ends up with him in conflict with his crewmates. But again, it's not the same story, It's Mm. but it's the closer than the other one is anyway. That does sound, yeah, that's far closer to what happens in the the story of... Well, spoilers... Yeah. Uh, of, of uh, appointments on Mars. Yeah, I found one thing in the Washington Post from the day it was broadcast, which was basically the TV listing for the episode, except they called it Flight to Mars, Okay, which suggests more of an element of it being about the actual journey rather than appointment on Mars, hmm. which suggests diaries? I don't know. You've, you, yeah, it is an odd title anyway. Yeah. An appointment with someone or with something? Mm-hmm. Not clear well we'll get into that so tales of tomorrow the series that it's part of anyway was broadcast on abc from 1951 to 1953 they managed 85 episodes wow all of 30 minutes long and it had a more of an adult slant than a lot of other shows sci-fi shows which is why the adverts in the middle of it and at the end of it are for carpets rather than toys and games or whatever the, the advertising is is amazing actually as a slice of Americana at that time, and and from a working in a, a graphic design illustration background, it, it's it's really quite interesting to see how honest and frank and direct advertising was on television at that point, <laughs> compared to um, some of the production costs and things we we see now, and the, the very extravagant narratives at Christmas um, around uh, <laughs> around this this, this season. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. It is always nice to see a bit of archive TV with the archive advertising in place around it. And this is because this anthology series was presented by this advertiser, the, yeah. this carpet company. So yeah. it's not even that it's like it stops, then they show adverts, then it starts again. It stops so the sponsor can say, well, we'll carry on in a second, but first let me tell you about carpets. That's right, and it, and it's something that appears on the Twilight Zone, which, um, as we've said, came later. There would be um, Rod Serling announcing a piece of advertising um, for an alternate sponsor. Um, so the 
when you're talking about a half hour of television in 1952 or slightly later, you're really looking at two pieces of advertising um, for the same company or possibly for only two companies. Compare that to half an hour of of, of television, um, episodic television now, Mm. um, and and look at how many bits of of advertising are, are, are you know, you're constantly being bombarded with. And um, if it's something like, um, you know, like a Love Island or a um, uh, not Strictly Come Dancing, because that's on the I'm BBC. Strictly a Celebrity. Uh, yes. Let me in, be on this a, island. If there's a, a jungle-related one. And the amount of um, synergized products and things and, um, and soundtracks that come out as part of um, a sort of advertising and merch bundle is, is really quite interesting. We're completely different to what you... Just you get with 1952. This. It's just intense carpet Carpets. advertising, and and I tried to write down um, as we watched it some of the the terms that are used for explaining and describing to the audience uh, those carpets. And I just had to give up because it was so thick with... Um, it was almost as thick as the carpets themselves. The uh, ah, <laughs> the deep pile. That's a more um, snappy sort of line. <laughs> They'd have killed for that line in 1952. Um, yeah, the um, it's an incredibly honest and frank and just descriptive way of advertising something as simple as a carpet. And as you pointed out, Paul, it being broadcast in black and white, um, <laughs> one of the great jokes is that actually they, um, which is not intended as a joke uh, in the in the advert, is that they actually have colour swatches and they describe them. Uh, and, and even one of the colours that they do mention is grey, yeah. which is just, just wonderful. Which shade of grey would you like for your carpet? Would you like grey? Well, it was like... This comes in some fantastic colours, such as grey, beige... Cream. Cream. And beaver. <laughs> uh, you know, as a... Well, beavers are native to the UK, but they're not very widely native to the UK. I couldn't tell you what colour a beaver actually was. Is it brown? Brown. Sort of brown? It's a brown. I'd go for brown. It's brown. And uh, Let's not talk any more about beaver colour at this point. Or carpets. Oh, well, I'm sure we'll crop up again. Let's let's basically uh, let me tell you a little bit about the the setup and the cast. It's a three person cast with a couple of voiceover people involved as well. At some point, it's shot studio based. It's a sci fi story, and the simple basic principle is three men from Earth have gone, funded by a mining company, to go to Mars to check for mineral deposits. And that's why these three people are on Mars. And we start with them on on Mars. They've landed, they've unpacked, and they've got a job to do, which is basically go looking for mineral deposits. Yeah, and it's it's very much a tale of blue-collar workers. I think the dialogue um, reflects that the way they talk is not um, corporate. It begins, actually, with almost a game kind of being quite grab-ass and, and childish and, and boyish. Yeah. Um, that there's even a moment very early on where one of the characters starts to talk vaguely in a scientific way and is and is is, is told in, you know enough of that professor yeah um, so that's not the kind of story that they want to tell it's very much actually in in genre I guess you could say it's a prospecting movie definitely it's about that frontier this could be the uh, before a, a a gold rush if you like the the first people to to get on onto this uh, this strip of of land uh, irrespective of it being on on Mars um and the fact that they um have pistols um 
is actually is something that's picked up by a few people on the internet again yes, not lasers um, but they they have pistols with them they have weapons um but that's true of you know the age of discovery captain cook all of these types of stories and of course they're going to be relevant later um in in this specific story but it's it's very relevant to that kind of sense of human exploration where you do go with something to defend you They've well i think not- what's interesting you saying that is that S.A. Lombino, Salvatore Lombino, Evan Hunter, by this point, he had been in the Navy, but he was from, you know, he was a shit kicker from New York, Mm. from the Bronx for a while at this point. He'd been in basically Italian Harlem, then the Bronx. He'd been in the Navy, so that was his travel. So he'd seen camaraderie, he'd seen what it was like to be aboard ship and see that sort of stuff. But if you think about what people like about his books, particularly the Ed McBain books, it's his dialogue and it's his human behaviour. I'm not suggesting this is an example of his, the best of it. It's not mm. by any means, but it's not bad at all. No, but really. it's it's earthy and earthly. Definitely the the um, the dialogue. Um, it's it's screamingly American dialogue and screamingly uh, of that period. It's so colloquial uh, in places that. I think you know we found some of the expressions quite amusing, but oh, yeah. that doesn't detract from the episode. I don't. I don't think it. Um, it just it, for a story set on Mars, it grounds it. It, yeah. it tells you exactly in a very short order in a very short episode um, of television, like what kind of characters these are, like what their backgrounds are, without having to really flesh that out. Yeah. And and as you said, like you're given that setup straight away. They're here to prospect. And there's there's um, an interesting point of they weren't able to make it alone. They needed to take on some corporate money or some corporate sponsorship. And I was I was wondering if you'd come across anything at all that might have made that a pointed comment from well, um, Hunter Lombino. No, I don't think there's anything specific, but it certainly crops up in a couple of his other sci-fi things. Everything seems to be funded by someone. There's a, a few stories. I was going through all, a bunch of his sci-fi short stories trying to see if I could find an equivalent for this story. And there's a, a handful of them that are all about where does the money come from? Mm. So although he'd been in the US Navy, which is obviously a national thing, he's clearly got his eye on the idea that industry is going to take over these things. But again, that's an American thing, isn't it? The idea of... Yeah, of- again, capitalism and prospecting and that, you know, going back to, hearkening back to that era... It's um, almost like yeah. the railroad expansion and things like that, exactly, different companies yeah. and stuff like that. So before we get Sp- stuck in... SpaceX. SpaceX. Let's, oh. <laughs> he was way ahead of his time. Yeah. If only the people who were like these billionaires with all the technology and all the ideas weren't also the most repellent people on the planet. Imagine. Oh, imagine, what, imagine if just one nice person was a billionaire. Well, if they were a nice person, they wouldn't be a billionaire, would they? No comment. No, right. You're not telling me something. I don't. I, I'm, I'm wearing a threadbare cardigan, so I don't think I'm. You only brought a Toblerone. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a large Toblerone. It to was be very. Fair. Anyway, before we get into the episode bit by bit, let's just talk a little bit about the main cast in here, because and the re- one of the reasons it's worth doing this episode is because the the lead credited actor is the only one who's named in the little linking material is Leslie Nielsen, That's and right. 1952 is very early in his career. It's not his first screen credit by any means. He'd been in quite a few of these 
different one-off drama series, and he's in quite a few episodes of Tales of Tomorrow. So roughly how old was he, or do you, have you got that? I haven't got that information, but I think he was probably only in his mid-20s when he's doing he this. He does look very youthful in this. Yeah. He, and his hair is not silver yet. It's not. It's beautiful hair. Beautiful mm. hair. Appears very nicely on television. Lustrous. Yes. He was in six episodes of Tales of Tomorrow, one called Ghost Writer, which please let that be about a ghost that writes. One called Another Chance, Appointment on Mars, the one we're talking about now. One called Black Planet, which sounds more like a black exploitation sci-fi movie from the 70s. That I would like to see. Yeah, it would be brilliant. And a two-part adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Wow. Because they apparently they, sometimes they adapted established quite well-known things like right. Frankenstein. There, yeah, there's an episode of Frankenstein which I'd like to see. I, I do want to watch more of which these Which has Lon well. Chaney in it or someone like that. <gasps> well, that's good casting. Something like that, anyway. But this is his only science fiction role before he gets Forbidden Planet a few mm. years later. And it's essentially the same sort of role, isn't it? He's it, the well, captain, he's the of, captain a of a ship. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the yeah they're quite different in the sense that, um, again, this guy's uh, Robbie, Captain Robbie, in the... Um, uh, appointment on Mars is very blue collar, um, whereas in Forbidden Planet it's part of a sort of established Earth, essentially kind of Starfleet type of military-ish united thingy. thingy thing. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to know if his doing Appointment on Mars had any sort of impact on him becoming involved with Forbidden. I think Planet. it would be very easy for a producer to have seen that and gone oh yeah leslie nielsen's done sci-fi i can see him he's as got a, a captain that sort a, of presence yeah because he in a way he's the he's like the super ego in this he's trying to keep it all together when things do start to go sideways yeah and what's even better is of course he goes on to become one of the most famous tv detectives of all time in the sherlock f- Her- <laughs> <laughs> in the form of Pot. oh I'm going to try again. In the form of Sergeant Frank Drebin, Detective Lieutenant, Police Squad. That's right. So he's, you know, he's in that world. This isn't comedy at all, though. This is before his comedy days, really. Because he's such a good straight actor as well. But that, Well, that's that's the thing, because basically when he when he works as a comedy actor, it's, it's because he's a good serious actor. He's deadpan. Yeah, he's um, deadpan to the nth degree. And yeah. as we were discussing before we started... Probably in his later career, that's what makes it a bit boring because everyone knows what they're getting. And once you've gone past the point where he's really brilliant with it, like Airplane and Police Squad and Naked Gun and one or two of the later ones, it gets a bit much that he's just he's so deadpan that he's yeah. not actually acting anymore. And there's he's a lot of low-budget parodies on parodies on parodies that we, we briefly looked up and, and felt slightly sorry for him because there are I've got such a... Uh, an enormous amount of um, sort of warmth um, when I think of Naked Gun and, and and Leslie Nielsen as a comedy actor, but also from Forbidden Planet as well. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I reminded you about um, him appearing as a recurring character in Due South as one of the head Mounties. And he, he just has this incredible charisma. Um, and I think it's a shame that he went from a uh, leading man. And then I do think that um, those roles, which are iconic comedy roles, will have damaged his ability to get taken seriously as a, you know, as a as a as a serious actor after that point in 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 dramatic productions. Because I can't really think of anything that he he did subsequent to 
naked gun where he appeared you know in a non comedy role and that, that seems like a shame to me an episode of Columbo. <gasps> oh, good, good, good God. Which I can't remember what it is now, and that's going to really annoy me. I wish I'd checked in on that, because I've definitely seen it. Put a pin in that. Okay. Other people in the cast. The other two people in the cast. We've got a guy called William Redfield, who had almost exactly the same career path. If you look at their credits on IMDb, same sorts of shows, same sort of TV productions, presumably the same sort of background. His, uh, but he had a science fiction high point because he played the captain, Captain Bill Owens, in Fantastic Voyage oh, in wonderful. 1966. Okay. Which is, With Racco uh, Welsh. Well, it used to be on every bank holiday. It was one of those ones that had come around on a, a long weekend in mm-hmm. the UK on Channel 4 in the afternoon or something like that. But it's not Bill Owen from Three Men in a Bath. Last of the summer line. Last of the summer no, line. No, it's not. Captain Bill Owen with his with his rope belt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you've got a bit of British TV ephemera in there for I our long time listeners. I know you enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, Captain Bill Owens. So that's William Redfield. He's one of the other one of the main three characters. Only three characters. And then we also have Brian Keith, who had a very similar career to the others. I mean, these guys are almost exactly the same career path. But he didn't do any big science fiction films. But he did play the dad in the original version of The Parent Trap. Oh. Okay. Where Hayley Mills plays opposite Hayley Mills as twins, I think, in that one. One yeah. of those Disney live action things. And that's that, your... That's probably on Disney Plus now. Probably is on Disney Plus with The Mandalorian, a programme I'm clearly never going to get to see. Next year. <sighs> Anyway, producer, Mort Abrahams, he's a big name as well. He produced Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah, wonderful. And Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Okay. And, <laughs> well, yeah, all right. Diminish, less, diminishing less, returns. Less, less good. Uh, well, Beneath's not too bad, I think. It's got some charm to it. There's a really good Futurama joke inspired by it. <laughs> Indeed there is. But he also produced The Man from Uncle. Oh, okay. So he had a very good set of credits. Those are some of the ones that most people would have heard about. And the director, Don Medford, well, now we're talking. This is a man who directed episodes of Dr. Kildare, The Fugitive, Police Story. Hold your horses. He produced, he directed, rather, episodes of Mrs. Columbo. Oh, my word. The Kate Mulgrew. Captain Janeway. The Captain Janeway weirdness thing. Yeah, spin-off. That wasn't actually Thing. a spin-off from Columbo because they kept trying to distance it from the original character as it went along. He did some episodes of The Fall Guy, Airwolf, Dynasty, and all all the big names. The Twilight Zone. Oh my word! So he did a few episodes of The Twilight yeah. Zone as well. So there's you know there's a That's good. A, it's a very varied TV career. You know he's, he's a consummate TV director then, wasn't he? But it does establish this program as being part of that tradition of, mm-hmm. of establishing TV in that certain way, using these sorts of people who went on to have these careers. They, they could go into any sort of TV repertory company type situation. Yeah, well as crew or cast one of the things i was gonna um mention to you or well discuss with you um is the the place of um sci-fi in the early 50s and when we're dealing obviously with tv as a medium we're still talking fairly early days for television um but sci-fi was extremely popular at that point it appeared uh in you know weekly monthly um, periodicals or short stories but it did have this slightly tarnished reputation as well as as of being something that was it's somehow juvenile or not to be taken as seriously as literature with a capital well L. genre fiction is a big is the big thing really and it's the brush that 
say Ed McBain was tarred with for years because detective stories, police stories, are genre In fiction, same kind not of literature. Pulp, yeah. And it comes out of the pulp tradition of these mm. magazines and the other types of pulp publishing, which is these cheap paperback books, these garish, brilliant, silly detective stories, lots of scantily clad women in yeah, jeopardy spi- on the spi- Spicy detective stories. And then all an the example. sci-fi yeah, world yeah. of it as well, which yeah. I know we both love. And I, I find myself addicted to buying these cheap sci-fi paperbacks, which I will very often not read, but mm. I will buy because the cover looks so good. Yeah, be- beautiful like artefacts of a, a forgotten age, really. But actually, they're probably more significant in the establishment of the type of entertainment we enjoy now than any Certainly. big literature of that period was. Yeah, or, or, or the, the really um, popular um, genres uh, that were being pushed then, um, such as Westerns. Yeah. Um, and I, even, you know, um, Tarantino kind of um, takes a bit of a stab at that with... Um, uh, he's my uh, most recent film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, with um, the the idea of so well slightly later, but the the idea of spaghetti westerns coming in and that idea of exploitation cinema, um, but within the the genre of 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 the western and and westerns being a you know typically sort of very sort of American thing, but American sci-fi of this point is really a very interesting prospect it is and it's a lot of it's off the back of world war ii as well and rocket development and the fact that verna von braun is brought over to the (laughs) to the states to develop this next stage of space exploration for the u.s to try and win this this space race with Mm. russia and obviously the imaginations of people are going wild over all of this stuff yeah well that's the other thing with obviously with um 50s sci-fi american um sci-fi there's all there's almost always a, a cold war uh, element to it there's always a, a paranoia element and that's certainly true of appointment on mars yeah. although it's not necessarily i don't think related to the cold war in or or it's it's done in a very oblique way I think the thing it always was that they needed an enemy. Yeah. So these stories, especially sci-fi, which are frontier stories, mm-hmm. are very often about, well, what if we butt up against an enemy here? And if this enemy is... We don't know anything about this enemy. They're unseen. They are maybe powerful. They might have this skills, which is basically we're scared of communists. Yes. In yeah. so many cases, basically. Yeah. So I'll tell you what. Let's stop talking about the broad world of science fiction and start talking specifically about this episode of TV by S.A. Lombino. Appointment on Mars, starring Leslie Nielsen. Sponsored by C.H. Maslin, (laughs) who are still uh, trading today. Uh, That's one of the questions I was going to ask. Yes, you can can buy a C.H. Maslin carpet today. And is it still uh, $8.49 per square yard? I suppose it depends on what type you get. Are you going to buy the Spindrift cotton carpet... Or Cantata with a Wilton Weave. Well, I was more interested in the um, Spindrift because of its deep pile and plasticised backing. Plasticised backing, I think, is probably very good. I think everything should be plasticised on the back and it would all pass smoothly over each other. Like water off a duck's back. Yeah. I do like to plasticise wildfowl at any point. I recently... Anecdote. I recently... (laughs) Um, had to hold the neck and body of a duck uh, because an angler uh, at a local park, Greenbank Park, had uh, accidentally hooked a duck, a real one, not not oh, in no. a carnival, 
um, and I had to help him to try and uh, disgorge his hook, which unfortunately he was unable to do. Uh, but I was on the bank of Greenbank Park, almost falling in as this was happening, and there was blood coming out of the duck's mouth. And uh, a duck is quite strong, it turns out, and if it flaps its wings, you really can't hold on to it very well. And then I told this story to my dad, and he told me how to hold a duck, and I don't know where he got that information from. <laughs> There's a whole backstory to your father's duck handling abilities. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you really need to get on tape. When 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 we make a connection to Evan Hunter, we will I'll bring that story back. Yeah, fly me. Well, that I didn't know where that story was going. That anecdote and the duck lived. I hope so. We went back the next weekend. And then and it was still we, there. We counted the ducks, and th- there were the same number of of white ducks. And so that we take, one with we, blood we, all down its neck still there. <laughs> the Phantom of the Opera Duck was, yeah. was there, yeah. Well, there's a lesson there about fishing gear, isn't there? Maybe? Yes. Which you might have bought your fishing gear from C.H. Maslin, as it turns out they, that they make that as well. They just drop that in at the end of their advert. It's like, makers of fine carpets and hunting and fishing gear. Hunting and fishing clothes, that's mm. right, yeah. Anyway, let's get away from carpets. We open on Mars. We're not getting there, we're already there. It's a little tent in a studio on a sort of barren Martian landscape. I say barren, except there's quite a lot of rocks and there uh, is, plant there is, life. There is plant life, and that, that's a, a plot point early on. Bart, the uh, superstitious scientist, does talk um, uh, initially about chlorophyll content uh, before he is um, shushed by Jack, who's a sort of big bruiser of a man, and told, you know, oh, Professor, we don't need to hear the, the so science. So can we establish their characters? Leslie yes. Nielsen, who... Is Captain Robbie. Captain Robbie is... He is... He's a captain in the sense that he flies the ship. Yes, he's So the he's pilot. the only one who knows how to fly the ship. That, and that's really important later. Uh, Jack is a sort of just angry man, and I suspect that a lot of his dialogue was inspired by uh, the naval background and the, did you say Bronx background? Yeah. yeah of Lombino. Because he is, he's quite a bruiser of a guy. He's quite crude and I uh, straightforward. He's, he's basically, he's there as the muscle. He's like, he's like a miner yeah, or something if, like that. If, if you could form testosterone into just the shape of a man, it would be, it would be Jack. Yeah. Um, and then superstitious scientist Bart. Who's described as a little weed, a sort of... Uh, yes. Uh, he's yeah. not that small, that's the thing. No, he just, he's just not as um, imposing uh, or as tall as the other two actors, really. Um, but yeah, he, he initially talks about the flora of of Mars and, and, and wonders why, if um, there's comparable plant life, why there are there apparently no higher forms of life well, now they've um, landed on the planet... Uh, with its with its whooshing winds. Yes, it's very windy on this planet, it's isn't wind. it? It reminded me of Alien, how windy it was. It's maybe not quite as windy as Alien. The great thing about that scientist is he gets all the close-ups, basically, because he's the one who's first affected by what I suppose we could call Mars madness. Paranoia, yeah, yeah. It's, he does have one of the great lines in there, and he's, he's trying to explain why he feels a bit weird on this, this planet, and he does say... I don't know. It's weird. Um, no, thanks, thanks, scientist. Yeah, he he also. Um, it's very quickly. It's very quickly established that they're um, going to be prospecting for minerals, um, and he just stands up and says, "I don't think we're going to 
find many material, uh, many, many, many minerals at all. And they say, why not? And he says, oh, it's just a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, of course, the, the way scientists think and act. Yes, absolutely. Um, see Prometheus. <laughs> Let's not see Prometheus. <laughs> not again. But I like the way he opens with the two of them, not Leslie Nielsen, the, the two of them, they are running around a bit like kids on, they a, are. on a day yeah, out. Yeah. There's, There's a real kind of boy scout, sort of just silly juvenile, yeah, teenage boy, them, adolescent The first boys. people on Mars are all giddy and they're literally pushing each other over and it looks like they're fighting, but it's not. They're just joshing. Yeah, and it actually, that's a could be considered a clever bit of foreshadowing. It is. Be- I think it is a clever bit of foreshadowing. Because the two of them having this apparently... Um, antagonistic relationship and Leslie Nielsen as Captain Robbie being the one that breaks it up very much immediately within seconds actually establishes the dynamic of those three characters yeah definitely what I do like about it is that they're on Mars they've got no protective gear on they've got some nice sort of one-piece boiler suit space suits on uh, yeah it's it's very quickly established that um, they can breathe yeah so they're outside a tent which is literally a little pyramid a t- a tent. type tent of the classic variety and Leslie Nielsen, the captain, is like, we're at Mars, everyone, so tell you what, I made a point of bringing this because weight and payload makes no difference in this world. Some crates of beer. Yeah, and they're, they're very excited to have some beers. And I suppose, really, it's all downhill from there. Well, the evils of drink. <laughs> the temperance, sponsored by Masland and the temperance movement. Yeah. Um, the science fiction temperance movement of America. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so there, there is this really sort of quaint um, campsite uh, on, on, a, on a soundstage and, and it's the one set and it's filmed live, as, as you established before. And a lot of comments, again, online are about the, the low budget, but... For 1952, um, I think with a low budget, um, Don Medford actually uses some really varied shot types and and things to to get the best out of of that limited budget and limited um, setting. Given that we in the UK, 11 years later than this, were getting Doctor Who, which wasn't broadcast live but was filmed as live, Mm. essentially, was probably comparable if not slightly lesser in standard in many respects for how that was shot in the initial things it's just had a lot it had a longer prep time i think really mm-hmm. but it's exactly the same system of you have a bank of cameras you have a simple simple sets and you've got to hit your marks and you've got to get your people there given that this was 1952 not 1963 i think they do really really well and there's only one or two moments where you you're totally taken out of it because it's clear the the, rest- the restrictions of the studio yeah are. absolutely and I think uh, that's that's where a suspension of disbelief and just going along for the ride of a of a of a half hour basically play for today comes in but but yeah there are as you said there's some really good um, close ups and extreme close ups on um, uh, Bart um, some very good eye acting eye acting sideways yeah eye he's got acting. these really great in black and white he's got these really good dark eyes and and he does seem really perturbed and and you get the sense that something is afoot yeah well talking about foots the scientist as all scientists do is carrying a rabbit's foot with him yes that's which, correct betsy <laughs> which is well this is one thing heavens to betsy heavens to betsy indeed because if you're going to take a rabbit's foot with you 
I don't know, does everyone name their rabbit's foot? Or was that the name of the rabbit from which it was cut? Oh. Oh, my rabbit Betsy's died. I better take a foot. Is the foot the same as the hole? Does it retain the name? Or should it just be called Beth? Um, that's an excellent set of questions. Well, I know. But anyway, the point is the scientist is shown to be a... Not a cynic, but he's, he's he questions things in a very unscientific way. And he carries a rabbit's foot, which he does... Be- really puts a lot of faith into although we don't get any actual faith faith as yeah he's no that's right he's but got he's, he's got he's a real superstitious yeah definitely superstitious and he and he yeah that again just like with the, the the pistols almost like Chekhov's pistol you you've got a very clear sense that each object that appears is going to be fairly significant I guess other than the beer because the, mm. the beer is just something that, that I think establishes them, as I said before, like a like a kind of blue collar type, um, as opposed to yeah. sort of military or not that the military wouldn't drink. Uh, but the um, yeah, the first thing that he do is set up camp and have a beer together. Yeah. You get the sense that they're not um, you know particularly professional. <laughs> <laughs> well, you assume that if once they're having a beer, you assume it's like, well, we'll have a beer around the campfire tonight, and then we'll get started in the morning. But no, mm. they have a beer, and then it's like, well, should we get to work? Now, then? now let's go hunt those minerals. <laughs> and they're off, so they go off with a Geiger counter. Essentially, that's so they've landed. They're the only people on Mars, as far as they know. There's three people from Earth, first ever people on Mars. This huge planet, 34 million miles away, we're told, which we did check on. We did check on, And it on, is yeah. possible that at a certain point, Earth and Mars would only be 34 million miles away. Yeah. And but it, on average, and it's much further. Perhaps it would make, yeah, make sense that if you're not terribly confident in the technology that you would you would aim it to, to, to work within that, that window yeah, when it's definitely. The, the, the shortest distance. I assume like. they've got fuel for another 34 million miles They back. might have to wait a while for it, yeah for that alignment. Oh, yeah, that's a good point, actually. They'd probably have to have more. I don't think I hope that's they've something... got some sort of almanac with them, <laughs> some sort of Mars almanac. Or just lots of fuel. Yeah. But anyway, they, they, they think they're the, only, they're the only people on Mars, as far as we know, and... Their plan is to scan it by hand with Geiger counters for yeah, minerals. That's something the entire place. Something I pointed out to you as we watched, and I said, Oh, gosh, it would take them an awfully long time, wouldn't it? Definitely it definitely would. It definitely would. But they start, and the great thing is, within minutes, we assume from the storytelling, they discover that Mars is made of solid uranium, more or less. Well, they find a seam awful, of it. There's awful lot of uranium. He's but. Bart follows a vein of it um, for some some time, some amount of time, uh, but it is the same day, uh, and then and then it hits pay dirt, um, and they they they're really giddy and happy because it's going to be make even even paying half to the uh, to the corporate sponsor, uh, the standard company uh, fuel company, they're going to make their fortunes on this. Um, so so it's paid off. They you know they really good better than they could have imagined basically yeah capitalism wins yeah so nothing could go wrong from here so at the end yeah well that was fun wasn't it anyway the point is at some point the one real production error is a point where a camera pans up too high and we see the studio ceiling and the cyclorama curtain around which is a shame really because that's the only real big yeah, like that's thing that's that takes right. you out of the story. Yeah, because um, we were talking about this before, and um, someone online again points out that um, later on there's a, a prop doesn't work the way it's supposed to, but actually some clever acting, some clever ad libbing, act- in, in some way, Pat 
perhaps adds to the to the drama of mm. that and i think possibly there's a, a fluffed line mm. um however that happens when one of the characters again um uh bart is being uh, in quite a heightened emotional state is being paranoid and it actually works with the character's state of mind at that time yeah um, so yeah it is really the only the only uh, mistake that that does sort of take you out the world of um, Mars. The world of Mars. The world of Mars. So it goes along quite nicely. They've found this. They're very happy because if they, they can map this seam, they can they can tell their sponsor that, that Mars is full of uranium. They can take take loads of it back because there's nothing wrong with a rocket ship full of uranium, I'm sure. No, absolutely not. Plunging and, and- towards Earth at faster than light speeds or whatever. And they, and they also, yeah, they, they literally then set about staking their claim. Well, this is the, one of my favourite things, is they're hammering in a little marker point, marker three, I think it is, and it's a little wooden stake, and they're hammering it in, and it takes two of them the best part of five minutes to carry on hammering this stake in with a lump hammer. And at that point, the stresses of Mars seem to be getting to them. So Bart and Jack are together, and they start to... Snipe at each other. They, they do. To get bad. Yes. The Jack, wind is is torturing them a little bit, and um, yeah, Jack. Um, it's maybe it's the isolation because you know the the ostensibly they're on a planet and the, there are only three people on that planet, and we'll never be in that um, in that situation. So there's this wonderful sense of isolation uh, on a, on a more or less barren world, and um, Jack develops a headache yeah and he's never had a headache before presumably because he doesn't have a brain (laughs) he's just (laughs) all solid muscle isn't Um, there an episode of star trek the next generation where picard gets a headache and it's like we eliminated headaches centuries ago or decades ago yeah he has a very minor headache um we haven't got any paracetamol because we don't need them i think i'm not sure i might be wrong here but that might also be the episode where they established that the common cold was cured uh, many many years before as well. Yes, it's quite an early one, I think. Mm. One of the anyway. Well, that's that's by the by, which which would actually be detrimental were they to face the Martians from War of the Worlds. Oh, I'm not talking about War of the Worlds at the moment. The BBC is currently showing an adaptation of War of the Worlds that's been much anticipated. The final part is on tonight. I am currently rereading the book out of spite at this TV adaptation. So. We'll not get into War of the Worlds. <clears throat> I've only seen half of the first episode, and I'm quite enjoying it. Well, you do you. Yeah. Well, it. I think part of the novelty is that living in Liverpool, um, there's a lot of Liverpool filming involved. So it's almost it like a... It, yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a sort of Where's Wally element of, oh, look, there's St. George's Hall. Oh, look, Formby Woods. And, yeah. it, and it really, you know, the, the, the filming and stuff really does look pretty pretty cool. Yeah, and that's nice if you live in Liverpool, as we do, and you can enjoy that aspect mm. of it. If you are just like the story War of the Worlds, then it's a different matter. We're not <laughs> talking about it. We're talking about appointment on Mars. They start to argue, it says in my notes here, which they do. That's correct. They start to argue with things. Have we? <laughs> <laughs> appointment in podcast studio. It's, um, but it's it, they start to basically come to blows, and the, the three of them eventually are sort of like... Try the captains try to manage these two guys who are being sort of becoming more and more paranoid. The big guys, yeah, more and more threatening the little guy. The little guy is becoming really sort of 
insular and frightened and then we learn they've got guns yeah and and just just be just when this is happening um the 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 spark point if you like is that um uh, bart's lucky rabbit's foot betsy has gone missing uh, so he he naturally thinks that it's jack kind of tooling with the only him. other person there uh, the only other person there um and and jack is already feeling you know it's f- a physically unwell um, so that just antagonizes him further. Um, so it just kind of spirals. And at this point, um, Leslie Nielsen's um, Captain Robbie's the only one um, who seems to be keeping a level head. Yeah. Or is he? There's a nice edit point, as you pointed out, where Leslie Nielsen's got this... Tapping the Geiger counter. And yeah. there's a, a nice a nice pan down and a, and a close-up of that. And then it and it switches to Jack and Bart and where they're hammering with the lump hammer. Yeah, I thought that was a so really actually, neat for a, transition. So for a live TV thing, yeah. that's nicely faded, nicely edited, and they've worked that out, and it's, that works really, really well. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a clue to how good this is for the time, really. And, and also... Given the constraints. Uh, again, the hammer itself... As a prop, again, then takes on another significance. It's used again. It's very, very sparing use of any props that the characters actually interact with. But each one is, like I said, other than the beers, actually come back and are, and are really kind of in, important to what happens. Yeah, and we get to a point whereby we know that everyone's antagonised, tempers are high, and then advert break. That's right. Or we move to the sponsor, and the nice man tells us all about C.H. Maslin's... Cantata. Cantata. No, Spindrift, the damn first it, one. Damn it, Spindrift. <laughs> At 8.49 a square yard. Ah, yes, 8.49 Lovely cotton yard. carpet, which means they can dye it in many, many colours, yeah, unlike it, the other it, ones. It holds the dye, and that's um, that that's unique to cotton carpets. Definitely. And the plasticised backing will stop you sliding around. I'm not entirely sure it might have. It might have hindered me holding that duck. It would have done, but but yeah. So we, and then that's if anything's going to take you out the world that you've been sort of invested in for the last fourteen minutes. It's suddenly a man stood in front of a wall made of carpet, telling you about carpet. But he does that for two minutes, and then he and he hands you back to Mars. He, he does, and it's it's done in um, a nice theatrical way. And um, you know, um, now we return you to the program, Leslie Nielsen in appointment on Mars. And again, I, I, there's something really quaint and direct and honest about it being a TV production instead of trying to kind of really over-egg the pudding and, and create something, you know, totally fancy in the way that, you know, programs now, are, you know, very high budget and all of these things. And there's something really just beautiful and honest about that. It's nice. But what I like is when they return to the story, we have an echo of the first scene, as you talked about foreshadowing before. So in the first scene of the entire thing, it's it's Jack and Bart sort of playfully pushing each other around, joshing. This time we cut back. They're fighting this time, but they're not joshing now. They're actually fighting. They're pushing each other around. And that's I think it's a very clever little directorial yeah, it, it, storytelling yes, touch as well, which is nice. So we come back and they're they're fighting... And the captain wisely says, "Look, we can't have this. Give me your weapons." Yeah, he say he he admonishes them in again in a very sort of level-headed way. He says, "You're acting like kids. 
Uh, to which Jack um, basically replies, he started it, <laughs> uh, which I thought was a great piece of dialogue, actually. Yeah, it's nice. And Jack is determined that he's going to be taught how to fly the rocket home. He wants to be told so he can leave and just get out of there. And Leslie Nielsen's like, this is stupid. It would take months for me to teach you how to fly a rocket. Not only the controls, but then you'd have to learn, and it's a great portmanteau word, astrogation. I, I did, yeah, I winced at that, and I and I saw you writing it down, because um, I'm pretty sure that would be astro navigation. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And it, yeah, he's, he's. But uh, I like the idea that they've they've gone. Well, if it was if it was a common enough thing, you would it would be, astrogation. Yeah, astrogation. It's astral navigation. It's not navigation on Earth. So that's fair enough, isn't it? It's a word that I think we'll start to use more and more yeah, as SpaceX. In, our, in, in, our, in our day-to-day lives yeah. in this 21st Although, century. Although, of course, when people were going over to find America, as one white man once did, apparently, mm. or uh, they would have used astral navigation then, wouldn't they? Because if they used the, the stars. The stars, yeah. You're so right, yeah. perhaps... Um, with a, se- with a sextant. Christopher Columbus was maybe using the word astrogation then. He, yeah, we'll bring it back. Yeah, we'll get it in. Um, yeah, so one note I did make about possibly a budgetary constraint, but I think also uh, just from a directorial point of view is how close... I've written down how close the tents are, but I clearly don't mean that. I, I mean how close the um, uh, the little beds are that they that they sleep on. Um, and it's so that they can do a physical pan across the three characters as they go to sleep. So it's obviously hot on Mars because they decide the way they're going to deal with all this stuff is it's bedtime. Yeah, that's a, the, basically... They, Wesley have, Nielsen is dad and he puts his kids to bed. So so I think we've skipped that the, basically that fight is, is a fight with a hammer as well, yeah. which I was... When I first watched this, I was really surprised because for 1952, attack with lump hammer on live television, I thought was was really quite violent and daring. Well, it's on Mars. It's all right. Yeah, it's, it's far enough removed. Um but yeah, so so they 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 put to bed, and then the next morning they wake up, and um, well, something wakes up the scientist. Bart, Bart, Bart is woken something's up. Something's got to him. He, he seems went. a bit twitchy, and so he decides he can see Martians. He's looking around; he can see Martians. So he starts firing he randomly into the, into the immediately landscape. Immediately begins firing because um, when Leslie Nielsen tries to get those pistols off the other two men. Uh, Bart refuses, and then Jack, I think, in fairness, rightly says, well, you're not having my pistol because he's still got his. Yeah, but if that was the case, there would be no disarmament ever. Isn't, but isn't that America now? Well, it's most of the world, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, but, so you've got a guy, he's, he's randomly firing, so obviously this wakes up the other two as well. And you, would, you would wake up if you, you were... It, so close to someone that you could accidentally touch the face, as, as Leslie a, Nielsen does when he's when he's uh, asleep. Like tender. Uh, a tender, a tender smack in the face. Yeah. Um, immediate pistol firing based on suspicion of um, possibly imaginary Martians at that at that stage, and uh, and that wakes up that rouses not arouses the other two, um, and yes, Leslie Nielsen tussles with Bart um, and. 
in in that uh, ensuing fracas, Bart is uh, wounded and sure to die, and he does. Mortally wounded. He, he he is he expires. He is um, an ex astronaut. He is. He is. Uh, yeah, run up the curtain and gone to join the choir invisible and this obviously freaks out jack who is still paranoid and figures out in his little tiny pea brain oh it was your plan all along captain wasn't it you were going to kill both of us and then go home well i'm not going to allow that matey that's why you wanted our guns <laughs> i figured it out then it and comes he's very down. and he's very sweaty at that he's stage as well yeah that's that's I think that's really well done because you can see that there's something quite wrong, and one of the things I thought about was: did uh, was it written um, in a way that the more cerebral character of Bart um, had this kind of suspicion um, all along, but then um, the character of Jack, be- being physical, had that kind of physical discomfort? So it's it sort of playing on different levels, you know. Ooh, um, that's a nice way of thinking of it. You've got the cerebral guy, you've got the muscular guy, and then you've got the, the, the rational captain who tries to sort of steer them clear, but, yeah, falls uh, falls foul of... Um, but basically we're left with Robbie and Jack and they have to... They don't tussle to start with. It becomes a gunfight because they does. both still have guns. And Jack tries to to get Robbie to take him to the shuttle to tell him out of the shuttle, the rocket to tell him how to fly at home and a gunfight ensues except that one of the guns so, fails. Yeah, on so this is the potentially the the prop that doesn't um work. The the Leslie Nielsen's pistol doesn't fire. Um but he um having been shot uh, in the stomach he he crawls over to Jack and throttles him in a sort of interestingly awkward way um i've never seen anyone throttled in real life yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, but even on film it's a very unusual way to throttle someone and so the three men are dead and so really you'd think that was the end of the episode and in some ways i kind of wish it was well before we get on to how it actually ends i will say that i was once in a play on stage and I had to fire a gun. Ah. And the gun that we had, the prop failed so that the caps inside it didn't go off. And I, I didn't have to throttle anyone, but I did have to improvise and ended up throwing the gun somewhere. And I can't remember what the, how that helped. The gun had to end up underneath a drinks trolley or something. But yeah, it didn't go off, so I had to improvise unlike, so i understand unlike in john wick where you'd have just thrown the not working gun at someone so as a hard weapon. it would kill them yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but it does so we've got three dead earth men on mars and we the camera pulls out as far as it can pull out without revealing the rest of the set and we get the voiceover from the two martians who've been observing this all along and in fact affecting actions on Mars. That's right. They've been um, somehow uh, invade... They, the word invasion is used. They've been invading the human minds and the, the weedy little one, as they refer to him as uh, uh, the scientist, Bart, was the most easy to coerce. Um, but eventually they all succumbed to this paranoia. And, and, uh, and in fact, they stole the rabbit's foot 
So these are very it's, mysterious, it's, invisible Martians that can take po- things. Possibly corporeal, but um, unseen observers. Um, the irony of um, you know an unseen observer, of course, being kind of interesting. Um, all eyes, but invisible. Mm. Um, but yeah, they they're never seen. They do refer to one another by name, and it's it is a little bit hammy. There's for me, yeah. Because, well, there's a lot of... I love reading sci-fi short stories where people have to come up with names for people on other planets and they're always called something like Klek and Narn. Mm. Rom. And Grap. Oh, no, that's, that's a bad one because he was in Deep Space Nine and he was a great character. You know, that's what it is. But roll. The, roll. <laughs> but the punchline is basically these Martians going, do you think they'll send more people? And it's like, not now. Oh, my voice went funny then. I was um, possessed by a Martian you did sound, briefly. You did sound quite Martian. Um, but yeah, ultimately they decide to take a look. They don't say, let's take a gander over there at the spaceship. But essentially they do that in a slightly more Martian accent. Uh, well, it's more American Martian accent. Well, the, the implication, accent or otherwise, is that they're going to seize the human's rocket ship and use it Pres- to, to... Presumably to go to Earth and spread paranoia and that's the only again. <laughs> the only kind of cold war paranoia connection i can make to this but the rocket as we are told in the closing credits was provided by the american rocket society plus reaction motors you actually see the the rocket just in the background of a couple of shots yeah you so the asked fact that it got its own credit you asked how um how big i thought the the rocket was and i hadn't even realized it wasn't just part of the matte painting to be honest yeah well it, it was um, given its own special spoken credit at but the it's, end it's given in the background forced perspective yeah it gives you a sense of a sense of scale and perspective yeah right okay well, we've got to the end of that piece of madness, so we need to sort of sum up really here. But before we do, I will ask you, as a sci-fi fan, what's your favourite Martian thing? Um, and you can't yeah, just say so Mars. I was, uh, yeah, I was going to say to you also, um, what? Who's your or my? Who's my favourite Martian? Ha <laughs> ha joke. Um, who's yeah? So I was thinking about this type of sci-fi that fairly other than that twist that i personally think detracts from the story of isolation and paranoia Mm. and what what you know greed and stuff can do um i think there have been several stories like this and even recently things like andy weir's um the martian which is very grounded survival story set on mars um i haven't seen ad astra but I think there's more grounded elements in it. With I've the, not the seen either with, of these. I've definitely not seen The Martian. The Martian um, is is wonderful. It's about... Oh, not you too. It, I'm sure it is wonderful. Gary was banging on about it in one of our episodes about um, one of the other sci-fi stories that Evan Hunter wrote. And it just it was his main reference point and it started to drive me mad by the end because okay. I've not seen it and I've still not no, seen it's, it. It's, it is, it's a... It's an unusual science fiction story because it is all essentially based on, I assume, fairly factual elements um, of a of a man trying to survive. So it's a, almost like a Robinson Crusoe type of thing. If Robinson Crusoe uh, was growing potatoes, okay. Well, that's something I didn't know about it. it. It's good. It's worth watching. He's um, dropped the potato spoiler. Oh, sorry. Um, and then um, 
so yeah, if if you're looking at, and again, the the 50s sci-fi is all over the map because you do get some of these quite fairly realistic. Although yes, the you know the atmosphere of of Mars and plant life and stuff isn't correct. Um, but this idea of a grounded kind of we get to Mars and this this little story happens. I I do have a soft spot for the I'm sorry for the the War of the Worlds Martians, but in the in the American. Oh no, I like production. that. I like yeah. the, the um, famous American the, film. The non the non tripod tripods, the ones that fly and make the wonderful noise. As uh, um, the wonderful noises of War of the Worlds by Jeff Wayne. Oh yeah, which, yeah, absolutely. It's I do love War of the Worlds. It's a, it's actually a fantastic story. I'm just disappointed with this current adaptation, yeah. and it took um, so long to turn up, and it's. It, I'm not going to say heartbreaking because I don't care that much, but it's it's annoying that they can miss out on some very simple, good sci-fi storytelling for the sake of weird flash-forwards. So I like the Martian Manhunter in DC Comics, although he's yeah he's kind of a slightly second-string mm-hmm. character. He's got kind of too many powers. He can phase through things, and his only weakness is fire. Um, but he's used in a couple of stories really nicely. Um, and he and he can change shape and and like turn into different people and pretend to be a human and stuff. Um, how about you? Who's your Who's your my favorite Martian? I lose track of what's where in the universe, mm. really, because it sort of doesn't matter. Maybe my favorite Martian thing is Mars Bringer of War by Gustav Holst from the Planets. Okay, yeah. which is a massively significant piece of music influencing as it did more or less every bit of sci-fi music for the entirety of the 20th century yeah it's it's a pretty much a staple on classic fm as well i love classic fm if i put classic fm on while we're in the car as we often do i'm guaranteed that i will get some sort of john williams superhero theme tune or or like action theme tune within about three plays of anything on classic yeah, FM. it's pretty much jurassic park Holst or um, Carnival of the Animals. Like um, anyway, we need to sum up here. We need to give this a score because we give oh, everything a oh score, yes, yes. and we need a unit to measure it by out of a hundred. So yeah, what? it's a it's a difficult one because we we yeah when you're not in a series, um, this so this this is difficult because of relativism. Well, this is um, a one off. We just judge it on its own merits and the merits of C. H. Maslin's carpets. Shall we give it? What what like fi- like how many Maslins out of a weave density a weave density out of how 100. well woven is the tail yeah um I I'm I it's you know given it in its own sort of context of 1952 again still fairly fairly early TV stuff uh, anthology show so they couldn't reuse sets and you know. Three or four Maslins out of weave densities out of Masland. Well, it needs to be out of a hundred, so scale. It oh, up. it's out of a hundred. Yeah. Oh gosh, seven seventy. Seventy weave density of seventy. That's is the, a weave density of seventy. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I agree with you. I think it's very interesting. For, I, these anthology TV series where every episode is different, more or less. Mm-hmm. There's a certain amount of repertory cast, but that doesn't matter because we're just looking at the one episode. It's nice to see Leslie Nielsen early on, and he's... The other thing that they must have taken to Mars, other than beer, is, like, buckets and buckets of brill cream. Oh, yeah, everyone's, everyone's just hair. And Leslie Nielsen's hair, so up. shiny, so yeah. shiny, that I'm hair very on Mars. jealous. And maybe it was all of that 
that turned his hair silver, characteristically <laughs> silver later in his career. Indeed. It's very interesting. In terms of its relationship to uh, S.A. Lombino, Evan Hunter, Ed McBain's career, I think it's really fascinating, especially if you've read any of his other short stories, because he's, his entire career is propped up on short stories and being able to sell them to sci-fi magazines, to detective magazines, to sports magazines in some cases, Western magazines. This is really interesting. There are things, if you want to look like I've suggested about the dialogue and things like that, that point to a future direction. I think it's good. I'm going to go for a 70 as well, mm-hmm. which gives it 70. Oh, that's very that's good. The, that's the answer. It's it's scored 70. I think this might be our highest scoring spin-off. Oh. And to the untrained eye, it probably looks like the most cheesy and worst of but them. It's, yeah, it's got real charm to it. And, and you asked me earlier about, um, you know, my sci-fi credentials, if you like. I'm, I'm a huge fan of... Kurt Vonnegut, and mm. uh, again, his career started with and was propped up by short storytelling, and and he's, he's he spoke a lot about how that craft helped him to develop as a writer and even as a as a teacher of of writing. Um, and you, it is this this episode is very t- taught. There's nothing there that doesn't need to be there, except in my mind that sort of slightly tacked on Martian thing, which. If we had more information about the production and, and stuff, maybe that was a, something that was added in, or it just seems like... Or perhaps because a lot of the Tales of Tomorrow do, um, as as the subsequently the Twilight Zone had, um, relied on twist endings. Yeah, it's a bit of an... It, ah. it does feel like, you know, it's uh, you, you, you're led to believe one thing and then you're wrong-footed, and yeah, may, maybe it was it was trying to hit that twist ending... Um, I think so. A little yeah. bit. Um, interestingly, Don Medford, of course, if he directed Planet of the Apes and Beneath the Planet of the Apes, um, two, two films that have fantastic twist endings. Actually, good point. Actually, um, yeah. and and um, Planet of the Apes um, was was written by um, Rod Serling. So there's that adapted that, from that, a book by a Frenchman, though. Um, Pierre Bull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, that ending's complete. That's not in the novel at all. So, so Don Medford working with Rod Serling. That's it. You know, there's, there's quite an interesting sort uh, of. What, uh, no, it wasn't Don Medford who directed it. It was the producer, Moore Abrahams, who produced it. Oh, sorry, sorry, but, sorry, know, sorry. I think, yeah, that's, yeah, 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 I think right. this is the, the okay. same point still stands. Yeah, sorry, that was me being uh, not good. <laughs> well, now you've my embarrassed brain, yourself. My brain go wrong. Well, there you go. Um, it, it, I blame it on my baby. Yeah, I think you've done very well for a man with a five five month old baby my, to my, manage to understand to some extent half an hour of TV from 1952. I blame it on midichlorians, Paul. Oh, DME. <laughs> and with that dreadful reference. <laughs> To, uh, I think it's time to finish. So I'm I f- thought you'd say Ice Warriors, Paul. Oh, no. to, to my favourite Martian, I've got to, got to be honest. They are very good Martians. They're pretty good. And they do hiss a lot. Big claw hands. That's right. Just hit my microphone stand there, sorry. I think it's time, anyway, Adam, for you to say to our listeners, goodbye. Goodbye, but please have me back. Bye, goodbye. <laughs> and I will see you soon, everyone. Fare thee well. So we end another Tale of Tomorrow, Appointment on Mars, starring Leslie Nielsen, and brought to you again by C.H. Maslin and Sons, makers of Maslin Beauty Blend Broadlooms and authentic hunting and fishing clothes. (laughs) 